Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Nick Enfield, author of Language versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists, published in 2022 by MIT Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So your book subtitle really suggests the book's main thesis, that language isn't a good tool for one set of purposes, but it is for another. Uh, and, and I think if I put it this way, another thing you're doing is kind of rehabilitating uh, a famous linguist, Benjamin Lee Worf. Um, so that's my sense of the, the overall project. But how would you put the main goal of your book? And why did you think it was important to write now? So that's an interesting link to make in terms of Benjamin Lee Worf. And perhaps we'll get back to that uh, during the course of the conversation. Um, to me, the real sort of issue here is that language has strengths and weaknesses, but in a very particular sense. So I originally wanted to call the book Language Destroyer and Creator. Uh, and so the idea was that, you know, that if you look at certain things that language does, you know, firstly, there's this whole set of ways in which language strips out aspects of what you experience if you try to talk about that experience there's all sorts of ways in which it radically simplifies the world that you're trying to describe um there's all sorts of ways in which it directs your attention away from certain things and towards other certain things and, it, and so these things are kind of can be viewed as bugs in a system and kind of downsides of of the system but at the same time there's all of these things that language can can do so powerfully it can create social reality in all sorts of ways it's the tool that we use to interact with people in life uh you know and it serves this incredibly important function in 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 conversational interaction and just you know the stuff that we use to to get through the day um and so that's, a, that's one of the fundamental ideas of the book is to try to look at the interplay between the kind of destructive side of language and the creative side of language. Uh, and one way to kind of capture that was to think about how the ways in which language can kind of mess with our heads opens up this kind of vulnerability, if you like. And that's the thing that the lawyers in my subtitle uh, are able to exploit. So basically the idea that language is good for lawyers, you know, obviously it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek use of that term lawyers, and it essentially is a shorthand for those whose business it is to persuade, uh, you know, regardless of what the kind of reality of the matter really is. And, And so what we can do with language is exploit those vulnerabilities direct people's attention in various ways. Uh, and that that's part of what makes language powerful. The other piece 
you know, the idea that language is bad for scientists comes from the same kind of set of properties in a way. And that is that if your business is not simply to try to persuade people of your belief, but actually to communicate the truth or negotiate the truth or find out what's true, find out what's real, uh, language gets in the way uh, quite a lot. So, you know, firstly, it's a, it's a pretty clunky medium for actually talking about reality as such. Um, but also it's sort of got all these biases in it. So it's quite hard to, to use language to express things in, a, in an objective way uh, and to coordinate with others um, in a kind of a non-biased way or a way in which, you know, you're not taking some stance or other. So, so that's the real kind of tension in the book uh, that I want to present. And I think that, you know, it's part of it is really about trying to advance our understanding of language. I'm a, a linguist by training and, and uh, you know, we're trying to understand what language is like and how it works and why it is the way it is. But more generally, there is this discourse at the moment around truth, post-truth, critical thinking, all of these kinds of questions. And to my mind, a lot of what I see being talked about boils down to language and really the power of language. So my hope would be that some of the arguments and some of the evidence and some of the discussion in the book, and particularly the kind of pleas at the end of the book, um, could find a way into those conversations. Yeah, so... How did you come to be interested in the book's topic? Because what you're saying, as a linguist, obviously, you're interested in these these ideas very, very deeply on a day-to-day basis. It sounds like you're also pulling a little bit from uh, con- the contemporary moment. But yeah, maybe can you trace a little bit of why why this book for you now? Um, what sure. brought you to it? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was trained originally in a kind of tradition of linguistics in Australia that combined a kind of a fieldwork ethic. You go to the field, you work in a language community on a language that perhaps hasn't been described or hasn't been described very well previously and figure out how the language works. Um, You know, and this is an important way to train yourself as a linguist and get a kind of an overall view of what a language is like. It's also a way to unavoidably get yourself into a situation where you're thinking about language within the context of a community and a social setting. So when you go and you do field work, you're, you know, you're spending time in in a community learning their language even if you're a formal linguist or you're thinking very structurally about language, you're still going to be thinking about the social functions of language. So I kind of came into thinking about language in that respect. It was, you know, you're doing descriptive work, you're thinking about structure, but at the same time you're, you're kind of embedded within this, within this community. And another part of the context that I was trained in was an attention to, to meaning. So I was trained by, people like Bob Dixon and and Anavish Bitsker and Nick Evans, people who've really thought carefully about meaning. 
in language, particularly in non-Indo-European languages, uh, you know, languages of Aboriginal Australia, for example. Um, so, you know, these factors were part of my kind of, I don't know, uh, intellectual DNA, thinking about the community in which the language is spoken, thinking about diversity in languages, thinking about structure and meaning. And that's what kind of got me into really thinking about meaning in language and its social uh, setting. Then as time went on, I got deeper and deeper into the social side of language and did a lot of work on conversation and social interaction, getting away from the kind of grammar and the semantics of language, but looking at how language works in conversation. And so I had a, a lot of work that I did with colleagues on how conversation works and that really kind of took me on a long excursion away from structure but it never sort of was a separate line of work these two things always were kind of connected in my mind and so there was a kind of a I was involved in two very separate projects when I in, in a postdoctoral phase I went to the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in Nijmegen in the Netherlands in the group that was run by the director Steve Levinson, and so he's a uh, this incredible cognitive scientist, uh, anthropologist, linguist uh, who had been very active in looking at linguistic relativity and these kinds of questions of the consequences of language diversity. And so that was the kind of context in which I was really thinking about these these questions of structure and meaning and community and social interaction uh so there were these two projects within that department that i was in and one of them was really about semantic structure kind of semantic typology comparing meanings in, in in the lexicon of different languages and the other one was about language use and, and conversation and pragmatics and and turn taking and, and and all these kinds of things and you know you could look at them in one way and see them as being really quite quite separate and we certainly were using separate methods but you know i was squarely involved in both of these larger projects and i never felt that they were separate so in a way this book is kind of naturally a meeting of those of those things there's a little story that i tell in the preface of the book uh, which is that we were at a, a kind of a retreat of this research group so you know we'd have a Every year or so, there'd be a, a, a retreat and the members of the research group would come together and talk about what we were doing and how we were doing it and so on. And at a certain point, Steve Levinson remarked that, you know, languages are really kind of hopeless at capturing the fine details of reality. They're just these incredibly kind of clunky uh, devices. Um, and then my colleague, Tanya Stivers, who's a conversation analyst now at UCLA, said, yeah, well, that may be so, but they're beautifully designed for a, for another function, which is facilitating social interaction between people. Uh, that's what they're really perfectly tuned for. And this kind of exchange uh, really stuck in my mind. And in a way, I think if you really wanted to trace it back to a concrete event, I think that little exchange really planted the seed in my mind um, for writing this book and it took me a long time to kind of get it to the point where it actually 
did get written up as a book, and I think that that's that's the kind of um, I guess if you want the the intellect the personal slash intellectual background to the mm-hmm. book, that would be that would be it. Yeah, I think that that nicely lays out the connections that you're that you're making in the book, and we can we can trace those out now a little bit um, because the book has these these three parts. So you have uh, mapped by language, nudged by language, and and made by language. And throughout the book, you're you're making connections between things like uh, lexical diversity and also things like narrative and storytelling and social coordination. And you're 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 weaving all these things together. So. Let's see if we could kind of just talk about the main ideas that you put forward in each section and any arguments or findings that would be really important for our, our listeners. Uh, so let's start with the map by language, the first section of the book. This is where you start and lay out the argument that you just hinted at, that language vastly simplifies reality. Um, and that this is a feature, right? It's not a, it's not a bug. Um, so how does language simplify reality what do you mean by reality? I think is going to be important here too. Um, and why is this good for human beings? Why is this a, a, a positive? It seems, you know, intuitively that there's a simplification. We're missing th- some things. What's what's going on here? Sure. Well, there is obviously a lot to say in terms of the relation between language and reality, and indeed those two words occur in the title of the book. But as you well know, there are, you know, whole kind of shelves and shelves in libraries that are written about this topic. So I'm not going to kind of get into a, a discourse about language and reality at, at, at great length. But what I would say, just to try to start with that point, would be to, to say that, look, I take the idea of reality firstly at face value. So there's a real world, there's, you know, tables and chairs, and uh, we hurt ourselves if we fall over. And, you know, there's a there's a reality that we are accountable to, and that's brute reality. And, you know, it's there whether we like it or not. And if we stop believing in it, it doesn't go away. So that's a sort of a just a simple notion that brute physical reality is something that we, we kind of have to live with, and we do live with it. But of course, we have social reality in a couple of different senses. And so one is the sense in which we actually create real things like, uh, you know, marriage arrangements or clubs or governments or these kinds of things that wouldn't exist. They don't exist by virtue of physical reality. Um, And I don't say that much about these things in the book, but the other sense you know, in which reality is somewhat more refined is that if we want to just sort of move around in the real world, then, okay, you know, that's what we have bodies for and and we make tools and they help us in various kinds of ways. But as soon as we want to coordinate with other people in the world, then that's where language really comes into play. Now, if you look at the literature on kind of cognitive science of semantics and what meanings get encoded in language. There's this, I think, kind of very, I don't know how you would put it, one-dimensional or kind of simple idea that what we're talking about is a relation between words and the world. So you have the world as I just described it and then you have words and somehow words have to capture these, some distinctions in the world. And everyone would recognise, of course, that the world is much more nuanced and much more gradient and much more detailed and complex than 
than the woods that we have. That's very easy to see. Uh, you know, we have many fewer words in our languages. I mean, we have an infinitesimally small number of distinctions that our words can make than are present in the, in the world. And if you just think about that discrepancy, then you, you would say, well, language is just absolutely kind of hopeless. It, it, it picks out almost nothing from reality. And now this is to come to this point that you've asked about, you know, which is why is that a good thing? <laughs> you know, why is that not like a terrible problem? Uh, that's because the function of language is not to describe reality in some accurate kind of way. It's to describe it in a way that's good enough that you can coordinate with other people around that piece of reality for some purpose. So famously, uh, Roger Brown, the developmental psychologist in the 50s, when he was writing about, you know, the puzzle of, of essentially this was a precursor to the, to the literature on basic level categorization. And he, he said, well, look, you know, there's a puzzle, which is why do we use words at a certain level of specificity? We have a word for spoons. We have a word for forks. We have a word for... Uh, knives, but we don't have words that distinguish between all the detailed differences between the various spoons in your drawer. Some are slightly bigger. I mean, of course, we do have words like tablespoon or teaspoon, but within the categories, you know, we don't have a special word for a chipped spoon or a bent spoon or what have you. Um, and his answer as to why that was is pretty simple. It's because people uh, don't care to make those distinctions or or at least those distinctions are not recurrent enough that people that there'd be any kind of payoff for making those distinctions whereas the distinction between forks and spoons there's plenty of payoff and it is recurrent and it all has to do he suggested with the culture that you're in and with the things that people uh, care about so what i try to say in that sort of first part of the book is that you know if you think about language as capturing reality and capturing kind of facts about the world it's you know it's distilling it down enormously and what you've got to realize is that there's actually kind of two steps of abstraction um actually you know so that the the first step is one we haven't really talked about which is between the 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 detail of reality and our perception of it so there's this kind of I've been talking about the very practical sense of reality that, you know, we bump into tables and things like that. And I can imagine, you know, any physicist saying, come on, you know, there's a lot more to reality than just the things that you can see. So that's something I didn't mention, but I certainly talk about it in the book. And that is that, you know, for example, you can detect with the right instruments, this incredible, range of electromagnetic radiation and only a small amount of it is visible as light and uh, as color and we can talk about the um the color spectrum and so forth in language but that's uh, that is a second level of reduction so we've got this first level of reduction um from you know true reality if you like to kind of our perception of it and what matters for us as organisms and then you've got this next step you know much more reduced again which is our our categorizations of it through language which are not about you know navigating the reality not bumping bumping into things and not you know it's we don't use the language primarily to 
identify instances of things in the world and so on through our vision and, and all of that, although language may have some effect. What I really try to emphasize is that if you think of language as a way of capturing a reality, it's awful at that job. But if you think of it as a way to coordinate with others, as a way of providing others with a kind of simplest map of the world that's around you, it allows you to coordinate in the sense of coming to solutions to coordination problems. Right. Yeah. So, so you talk about coordination problems as one of the first ideas that you give the readers in the book. And um, this is related to your comment about word meaning that you just, you just raised at one point you, you suggest, look, instead of thinking about word meaning in terms of what a speaker has in mind when she utters a particular word, we should focus on uh, dyadic analysis. We're looking at um, what's publicly shared information between a speaker and a hearer. And the the reasoning that you give to get us to that point draws on this idea of um, an experiment Schelling's game that you explain to the readers to uh, help us understand the idea of a coordination problem and how language is a, uh, a way of resolving that. Can you walk us through that? I know there's a lot going on there. Uh, and the, the book has nice images to help us see it, but uh, do your best with without the visuals maybe to help us understand it. Sure. So the Schelling work goes back to 1960. He was uh, involved in, this was in a book called The Strategy of Conflict, and he was really thinking about how people apply kind of metacognitive processes to solving issues of kind of conflict and uh, cooperation. So, you know, one of the problems with a, with a, uh, with life is that we have to coordinate with other people. Other people are this incredibly kind of prominent part of our, our life and our environment. So what do you do? Well, you know, you can talk to people and you can communicate with them and ask them stuff, uh, but you're not always able to do that. So, you know, what you've got to do is use your, social cognition and think about, well, you know, what are they going to do next? So we've always got this kind of mentalizing tendency and sometimes that's competitive. So he was looking at, you know, how people would think, for example, about strategically about battles and ambushes and this kind of thing, you know, I'm going to go up through the pass, but my opponent will think I'll go up through the pass. So I'll go over around the side and, but he will think that I thought like this, so I'll go up the pass and surprise him. You know, it's sort of this higher level kind of mentalizing. And Schelling thought, well, let's look at how people would use this not uh, kind of competitively but cooperatively. And he had uh, a set of kind of famous examples of what he called, you know, coordination problems that were, were cooperative in that sense. And so an example of the various experiments that he did that he reported on there would be, uh, well, a simple one would be something like uh, you have to meet this other person. Uh, you have two people in the experiment. You put them in different rooms. They don't get to talk beforehand. And you ask each of them separately, where are you going to, uh, if you can meet the other person at the same place and time uh, tomorrow, um, you know, we'll give you $100. But you can't talk about it. You just have to say where and when you'll meet them 
and they also have to say it separately. And then if it's the same place and time, you win. Uh, so what this meant was that people would, would think about the common ground that they shared. They would think, for example, is there a place that they usually meet? Or they would very often uh, attract to a kind of cultural, culturally standard solution like uh, you know, Grand Central Station at midday or something like this. And there were plenty of other examples of that. So um, another one that I like that's had a lot of follow-up studies uh, is, you know, mixes this this kind of moral element to it, which is the sharing of money. So I give you, uh, you know, $100 and I say you split this with the other person and if they're going to, you know, uh, if they would split in the same way, um, then, you know, you get to keep uh, if, if they don't split in the same way, then you don't. So people say, you know, we split 50-50 and, and uh, everyone agrees on that. Um, and the key thing that Schelling, you know, he gives lots of other examples. That the key point there was that people can come to solutions where they can coordinate with each other without negotiating what the solution is going to be in advance. They are able to coordinate around a solution based on you know mutual expectation and some kind of uh, it, it's not simply mind reading or anticipating what the other one would do but it's but it's taking into account that there's this mutual thinking about what the other one would do and it's really a kind of a, uh, a some kind of a we intentionality rather than you know an i plus an i uh, type of intentionality and the point that i've tried to make in the book is that words really work in this way because words are just these kind of signposts they're they're kind of these very stripped back maps and when we use them we mean something you know typically much more nuanced and much more specific and much more contextual than what the words actually capture Uh, but the way in which they communicate in, in in context really depends on inviting the other to play this coordination game uh, and in turn all of these coordination games then feed back into the way in which the language kind of evolves through time. So this is not really a new idea in the study of language. So Herb Clark, for example, has written extensively about this from a psychological point of view. But I think that his work is typically taken to be about kind of the pragmatics of language and the organization of how we understand uh, kind of very semantically simple bits of language like demonstratives, words like this and that. Um, So I think in a way what I'm talking about is an extension of that or, or going into greater depth with that and saying all of language, all of the kind of code that is embedded in language is really fundamentally predicated on the idea that we're solving coordination problems at every step of the way. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's an interesting uh, combination then of sort of two themes here in the book. You have this idea of the very public aspect of language um, and the, what's, what's shared between people um, in a coordination game. But of course, there's also this emphasis on the relationship between language and thought. So I, I guess I'm kind of curious to unpack this with you. And this is why I was talking about Worf in the, in the opening. Um, so 
would you say then that um, it's true that different languages have very vastly different terms for the physical world? Um, and why would that be if, like you said earlier, we are in some sense all organisms who are encountering the same physical reality, bumping into tables, having a certain uh, wavelength. So why would we have these sort of very different views, uh, or vocabularies, I should say, about, about language? Well, the question of vocabularies and whether we have different ones is, is purely empirical. Uh, and, and oftentimes there are debates around the facts. So if you say, well, you know, this language has more words for snow than that other language, well, you know, there'd be nice replies to that saying, hang on, I can go to, uh, you know, a ski resort somewhere in the US and people who live around there actually have this incredible vocabulary for for snow. And I, you know, so that's an empirical matter. And you can, you can, you can look at, you can go and do research and find out, you know, who has more words for what. But I don't think anybody would deny that there are differences between languages and between cultures with respect to, you know, the amount of distinctions they make in some domain. It's very well established in all sorts of domains. And as you say, in the book, for example, I go through the degree to which different groups know numbers of words that distinguish species in the biological world so how many plant words do you know if you live in a rainforest sure there's probably more diversity of species than if you live in in a average american city but actually in an average american city there's a ton of different tree species it's just that people don't don't seem to learn them and you know to me i have a pretty straightforward response to this whole discussion and it's one that I talk through in the book and I've spoken about elsewhere in terms of you know linguistic relativity and that is that if a if a language has some particularly high degree of specification in some domain okay firstly we establish that that's true and we can show it uh, just empirically then the question is, okay, well, what's that because of? If you look at the literature in cognitive science around, you know, trying to explain this, it's always about thought. It's always about the individual organism. You know, this the idea is something like the following. People in this culture know more words for this, uh, you know, for life forms and plants or animals or fish or whatever it is. Uh, because they're intellectually concerned with those distinctions or because they use those uh, plants or, or what have you. And it's framed, not always, but very often framed in terms of the relation between the individual and the world. So somehow I have to be interested in these plants or these animals and, and, and I pay more attention to them. Um, and sometimes there's a discussion of which way the causality goes. But fundamentally, there's a, a link between, uh, you know, having lots of language for some domain and having some kind of special cognition in relation to that domain. And my, what, what I try to argue in the book is to say, well, this is all far too individualistically framed. You know, it's really not about my relation to the world. It's about this triadic 
kind of relationship. It's about not me needing to pick that plant or find that plant or whatever, although that might be important to my life. But the only reason why there's a word for it is because I need to coordinate with others in my community around that thing. So, for example, I have to tell someone, please get some of that plant while you're out today and bring it back. Or I, I saw some of that plant. We'll go collect some tomorrow. It's it's not just about recognizing the plant or thinking about the plant. It's crucially about coordinating our activities around it. And something that's really important in this respect is that if you did not coordinate around those particular distinctions through using the words, the words wouldn't exist. They wouldn't circulate in the community. And this is one of the key things which is, to me, surprisingly often left out of this whole story is what actually causes these words, these linguistic distinctions to circulate in the communities. It has to be some motivation for people to use these words and the usage is not, it's not enough to say, I'm interested in this distinction. What has to, because why would I say a word if I wasn't, if I was merely interested in the distinction? I have to, I have to, to, when I'm saying a word, it means I'm drawing someone else's attention to that thing that I'm attending to. It's this kind of joint attentional um, situation, which clearly implicates things like the, uh, uh, the coordination games that we were just talking about with shelling. It's a, it's a triadic thing, and it's really crucially about coordinating social activities in relation to the distinctions that are being made. So the answer you know, to your question is uh, I think it's all about language and social coordination, not language and thought per se. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so another point that you make in, in the book related to this too, if I'm getting it right, uh, is that there are limits and sort of constraints to these, these kinds of uh, distinctions or uh, variations that we see in languages. Uh, they're, they're not just sort of coming out of coming out of nowhere, but they're informed by the kinds of organisms we are, the kinds of social structures we have, and the, the kinds of physical reality, brute reality that we are encountering. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's an important point. And I think, you know, if one says, oh, look, there's linguistic diversity and it's all about kind of cultural interest and so on, it can be interpreted as meaning, you know, there are no constraints on what languages can be like. You know, you can have languages that just... uh, say anything you can you can have any imaginable kind of semantic system and it's clearly not the case you know uh, i talk about several different domains in the book one of them is color it's a well-known uh, area where there's a really rather systematic way in which languages obey certain kinds of rules around what possible systems there can be in terms of color or a, a nice example uh, that I look at is in another domain is in words that distinguish between ways of locomoting, uh, things like walking and jogging and sprinting and so forth in in uh, in humans. And you know that's an example that I quite like because uh, there is a, a kind of a natural break. So you can distinguish between strolling and walking and sauntering and jogging and sprinting. There's a lot of different words in in English for these things. Uh, But 
those are there are a whole lot of very fine distinctions but within that there's a very not fine distinction a very kind of coarse major distinction between essentially walking and running so there's a point if you put someone on a treadmill and this is what the experiment uh, that i talk about uh, did you put people on a treadmill and they're just walking and then the treadmill begins to speed up so you're watching a video of this and at a certain point when they break into a run as we put it in english uh not it's not one difference there's a whole lot of things that have to happen with your body in the way that you're moving so it's a very perceptually salient distinction between walking and running and then within walking and running you can break it down into all sorts of ways and the study that i cite there was saying look you can have different languages dividing up that space to 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 all sorts of uh, degrees of granularity but you won't have any language that will ignore that uh, distinction between walking and, and running and, and, and I give all sorts of other examples around things like uh, uh, you know parts of the body and, and and so forth so what we find over and over again in language is that there's all sorts of variation but it's constrained variation constrained by the structure of the world in part and by the structure of our cognition and by our relation with that but i want to add to that so this is you know not a particularly new point uh it's well documented in the literature that that there are these kinds of aspects of structure in the world that find their way into how vocabulary is structured but i want to add to that that there's a causal step that is not often spoken about and it 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 comes back to what i was just talking about in relation to using language for for coordination if something in the environment is highly salient to us and noticeable to us then that simply increases the likelihood that we will use it to coordinate with others around that distinction because it's not only more salient to me but i can trust that it's more salient to you and that salience is precisely the mechanism that Schelling put forward in his coordination games that but but specifically not just salience but mutual salience it's salient to the two of us and we both know it so this is actually a a mechanism that is not only used uh, ad hoc in the kind of very context specific way but it's also something that finds its way into the language historically through repeated instances of uh of, of essentially using language to coordinate around things we see in the world yeah yeah and co- so color is one of the examples that you mentioned there and this uh this might be a nice segue to the second part of your book uh, nudged by language where you talk about how um it's it's not just um that there's uh that there's a there's a way in which we're able to uh, push people suggest sort of ways of of uh, responding to the world by use of language but you look at some cases of how people um, take have who have different color terms different ways that they carve up the color um, spectrum and put them into a sort of social context so I'm thinking of the discussion of German and Dutch speakers looking at the same color in a traffic light so I'm curious what lessons we should uh, take from that uh, study in terms of 
you know, you're pushing back on this highly individualistic way of thinking about the relationship between uh, linguistic diversity and, and human cognition and activity. Yeah. So you're kind of bringing us now into another aspect of the relation between language and cognition and the idea that the kind of words you have somehow affect the way that you think and reason. And I, I think you're right that for many people, this is dismissed as being, you know, either not real or just kind of trivial. Uh, and, you know, having more words for snow doesn't make you kind of think very differently. Recent years have seen a lot more serious experimental work looking at how these effects might work and more nuanced kind of discussions around that. So I think that, you know, it's a, it's a fast moving field. Um, I look in the book at quite a few ways in which we know that language kind of affects the way that we, that we think and, and even the way that we see. So the example that you raised about German and Dutch is um, interesting one where the, two populations when they're looking at uh, traffic lights will see the, the exact same color um, because, uh, you know, it's a, in the EU and there's a regulation which has to be the same color across the countries and so forth. Uh, but they happen to refer to it using different terms. One refers to it as yellow, one refers to it uh, as orange or rather in the terms uh in, in those languages. Um, but, you know, it's an arbitrary kind of way of talking about them. Uh, I guess in, in you know, I, I don't, I call it amber, funnily enough. Maybe that's an old-fashioned thing. I don't know. Um, but you can do experiments where you play around with the colour uh, that people see on, on, on paper or on a screen. You can do the same thing with, you know, uh, you give people a colour that, that they would call orange when it's, you know, um, on a picture of an orange, uh, but you have the exact same color on a banana and they'll call it yellow. Um, so, you know, the, the, the nature of this type of experiment is you get something that is halfway between the two colors, you know, somewhere between yellow and orange, but when people uh, see it on, on something that they associate with that color, they'll gravitate towards uh, labeling it with the appropriate label. And what what's interesting there is that this effect is actually a really known well known for a very long time so i talk in the book about a different set of experiments where for example you show people a and a very simple kind of set of simple line drawings that are kind of ambiguous and the uh, task is you know i'll just show you these simple little drawings and for example you see something that kind of looks a bit like a letter C or it looks a little bit like a crescent moon somewhere halfway between those two. But the trick in the experiment is you show some people, uh, you actually put a label on this drawing. So you show people the drawing and it says crescent moon um, and they see that word. And then you show the other people in the experiment, different group of people, the same exact drawing, but it says letter C under it. And, you know, you don't... Uh, uh, you just give them this one simple task, which is try to uh, you got to draw what you see later on, remember exactly what you see. And what happens is that the people who saw the label uh, crescent moon will reproduce the drawing looking more like a crescent moon than the original did. 
And those who saw the letter C will produce it more like the letter C than the original. So people will, you know, and there's a, a whole bunch of experiments that I, I, I talk about in the book that show very similar kinds of effects. So what these types of effects show is that using language, it, you know, it's a psychological phenomenon. It's, a, it, it's got to do with, even even though we're using it purely to coordinate with other people, it's clearly delving into our perception and it's organizing our perception and having these kinds of uh, effects. So what this does is that coming back to a point I made at the, at the beginning, it, it, it creates a kind of a um, exploitable vulnerability in the system. So if language happens to direct your attention in certain kinds of ways, like with this, at this very low level with things like, you know, uh, it's a letter C, um, changing the way you remember what you saw, then, you know, that is something that I can actually exploit when, if, if I'm trying to influence you and manipulate you. So in a sense, that kind of comes back now to, to what you asked about in the beginning with the question of why language is good for lawyers. Uh, and that is because if language has effects on our memory, if it affects how we think about what we see, if it affects what we notice and what we don't notice, then others are able to use those effects of language to, for better or worse, you know, it's not an intrinsically bad thing, but obviously it can be used for, for ill. Uh, but, but when people are trying to coordinate with, with us around uh, tasks and so forth, it's not always purely cooperative. And what's happening is that those, those tendencies of ours to be drawn in by our language in certain ways get get used. Uh, I don't know. They can even get weaponized, if you like. One implication of what you're thinking about uh, might be for people to consider how they can um, become aware of or or resist these sorts of effects. I mean, if that's indeed psychologically possible. So, I guess one first order question here is whether or not these sorts of nudging effects, as you as you're you know, talking about are things that if people become aware of, they can resist. Would, for instance, an artist uh, who is highly trained in their their attention to color be able to uh, label the the same color when it's in a, a banana and an apple, for instance, even if as the same color, would a would an artist be able to draw the shape in a certain way, even if they're primed? Um, so, I guess this is a little bit beyond your your book in some ways, but. Just in terms of looking at the psychological and linguistic studies, do you think it's possible that some of these effects are things that people them can, in fact, um, sort of push back on or, or become resistant to, um, whether or not they're uh, yes. for better or worse? Yeah. yeah, I absolutely do. And I think that really this is one of the important messages of the book is that, you know, in the end, uh, I, I really kind of emphasize this point, and that is that language is extremely powerful it it, it I, we haven't spoken about it but in that middle section i talk a lot about framing and a lot about how you know the way that you frame things actually doesn't just affect what you think you saw uh but it affects how you reason and 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 all of that um and this is very powerful it affects the way you judge what's happening and the conclusions you come to and in fact this is what a lot of the 
literature on cognitive biases is all about. And interestingly, it's just it's never really been treated as a linguistic topic. It's just uh, you know a kind of a cognitive science topic, and people don't really seem to reflect that much on the fact that it's language that's really having all of these effects. And this is actually a whole open field of study is, you know, to what extent different languages nudge you in, in different directions. I think that it is clearly possible to become more aware of how things are framed. And I, this is a, a basic concept of kind of information literacy, if you like. It's just becoming more conscious that the way things are framed in language is not ever really neutral. And that doesn't mean it's bad or necessarily manipulative or anything. It could be, it might not be. It might be the best way of saying what needs to be said or it might, you know, be hiding something, who knows. But you need in a way to get some intuitions for the kinds of situation in which you need to think about, okay, how else could this have been said? Uh, now, one of, the, one of the issues with what we're talking about here is that if you were going to become highly sensitized to the particular choice of words and, you know, the particular uh, what was being foregrounded and what was being backgrounded in every word and phrase and sentence that someone uttered, I mean, you'd, you just wouldn't be able to get through the day. You, you literally wouldn't have time just to follow the action so that that is certainly one of the constraints here is that you can't really question every single linguistic move that people uh, make but i suppose that you can become more conscious of when it matters and a lot of the time it you know we're hearing similar kinds of things in similar kinds of situations and uh you know there's a sort of trusted idioms and trusted ways of talking and we're with people who we know and so forth so a lot of the time there wouldn't be much payoff kind of being overly conscious of precise wordings and that kind of thing but sometimes there really is a lot of payoff and you know i think this is where we come to the kinds of things that wolf warned about uh you know going back many decades ago and he was really pointing out how I mean, he didn't really have the psychological kind of vocabulary for this, but the situations that he famously described where people were kind of, you know, misled in some sense by language. So, for example, you know, you uh, are told that you're in, you're in a factory and there's a kind of a bucket with something called spun limestone in it. And you go, okay, spun limestone, that's some kind of stone, so it's not going to burn. And it turns out that actually it's this highly flammable stuff, and um, this was one of the cases that he, he talked about where um, people were kind of you know, misled by language. And I, I like this case because I, I think what it really shows, although he didn't, you know, there's no, it's an anecdote, there's no way that he could kind of have studied it then, but I think what it shows is that we, the issue is not do we get our minds kind of channeled in one way or another. It's when and why do we switch off our thinking about what's happening in front of us. And that's what language is good for. It gives you this clarity that is, 
a philosopher C.T. Nguyen recently wrote about this, calling it, you know, the kind of thought terminating um, function of, of clarity that, you know, if things are particularly clear, um, then you don't pay more attention to thinking about them and trying to kind of understand them. So oftentimes when you get given a linguistic description of a situation and, you know, you're just going to kind of take it pretty much at face value and you're going to stop thinking about it, stop thinking about, for example, what this substance is called spun limestone and just go on to the next thing. And that's the danger is that, you know, uh, I think this is part of what is kind of missing in this whole discussion is that when we use words and when we act in response to words, we're not doing it in the abstract. We're doing it in this heavily kind of time-constrained, practical situations where, uh, you know, it, it's not so much that I'm being channeled in my thinking, but it's that I have to make a decision quickly about what this means and how I'm supposed to act. And then because immediately something new has come along, like your next utterance has arrived, then I have to uh, kind of understand that. Um, so, uh, I mean, one last point on this, and that is that uh, coming back to a question about sort of, I don't know, whether it's possible to overcome these constraints, so you can try to become a little bit more aware, but Worf had actually this really important and interesting point, which he he really made a lot out of in his writing. And I'm not sure if it's really kind of appreciated that much, but he really emphasized that people ought to learn languages very unlike their own. And a lot of what he reported on in, in his papers was you know, the, the joy and the incredible insights and the kind of liberating <laughs> results of learning these Native American languages that he was studying because they render the world in these really very unalike ways. And he's basically saying, look, they, they package the world in these different ways and that's interesting, but it has this effect that it directs your attention to your own language and you see that your own language is actually carving up the world in unusual ways too it's just all a matter of perspective and that that his answer to, to was was to say so therefore go out and learn different languages just as we should all go out and learn about different cultures and different ways of life not just because they're good or interesting or anything but because they give us insight they shake us from our kind of defaults if you like and those defaults are in defaults of interpretation that get presented to us by the language that we've acquired natively. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the last part of the book, you talk, as you've, you've uh, just said about framing. And so you look at Lakoff and Johnson's work on conceptual metaphors. You're, you talk about uh, what's called Russell's con, uh, conjunction of different, or sorry, con, conjugation, um, uh, how we, we use, um, uh, linguistic framing uh, in terms of word choice. Uh, you you look at violence as a case study. How um, the term violence has become a a focus for political and philosophical discussion uh, recently. How people complain that the the term has sort of broadened its meaning beyond uh, where it, it it should should be. This is a conversation that happens online in various places, um, and we're we're getting close to time here, but. Maybe I can just invite you to add um, 
to pick up one of these threads and, and run with it that you think would be useful f- for our listeners to to mix metaphors here. Um, is there something for, say, conceptual metaphors or Russell's conjugation that might be useful in just sharpening that that idea about, about framing and how it is that uh, language nudges us in different directions? Sure. Well, the, the, the Russell conjugation is uh, something that comes up a bit in the book. It's something that the philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote about uh, going back. And it was a kind of something I think that he developed in a, on a radio show, uh, sort of like a talkback show of that time in 1940s, I think. Um, and he was joking essentially that, uh, you know, while we have the first person, second person, third person conjugation for Latin verbs, uh, you know, we see the same thing in English. And his example was, uh, I am firm, you are obstinate, he is a pig-headed fool. And so the the idea was that the subject of the sentence uh, triggered a different selection of form of the verb, as it were, or the predicate, uh, as it were, in this case. And, you know, it was, it was this kind of funny thing. And, in fact, it triggered a kind of competition at the time where people wrote in with, uh, with some pretty funny versions of this conjugation. But it has this much more serious and, I think, kind of dark side, and that is that, you know, uh, this is exactly what you see in media discourse and public discourse today, and it's very powerful uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, one is that simply it portrays people in very different ways depending on who they are. So, you know, there are very obvious applications of this um, to do with kind of social categories that we're talking about someone who's one of us or not one of us, uh, you know, the enemy, uh, a friend, uh, the same kind of activity is getting described in different ways. So a classic example these days would be the distinction between rioting and protesting. Uh, so in the coverage of, uh, you know, the, 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 the unrest or the street incidents after the George Floyd murder, what you want to call them, well, you could see a distinction in the uh, news providers around the world, or at least in the US in particular, uh, that some of them would call it a rioting and some of them would call it protesting, depending on whether they wanted to put these uh, people in a favourable light or not. And I, I go through in the book many examples from uh, from from media, in fact, because I think it's an, this incredibly rich source of of this Russell conjugation. And the interesting thing about the Russell conjugation is that, you know, not only is it a sort of a, a you know, on one level, it, it, it it's, it's the speaker's way to portray, or, you know, uh, someone in a certain light, different from how they might portray somebody else, even though it's the same event that's being spoken about or the same quality that's being spoken about. It's also a way in which people can signal about themselves, their stance and who they are, Uh, you know, and this is sometimes called Wittgenstein's ruler. I talk a little bit about that as well. Um, This is a point that Wittgenstein made in the philosophical investigations where, you know, he says, um, uh, you know, you have a ruler, well, you can use it to measure a table, but if you 
if you know how long the table is, uh, maybe you can use the table to check the ruler. You know which which way is it going? And and he has the example of, uh, you know, when you quiz a student, uh, a pupil in class, they tell you the answer to a question. They're not giving you new information about the world because you know the answer. What they're doing is giving you new information about themselves um, that they know the answer. And so this dynamic is is uh, really important in, in media discourse. And I think it's one of the things that is often lost in conversations around, you know, post-truth and all that kind of thing, because oftentimes people are fixated on the idea that the purpose of delivering a piece of news or describing a situation is to convey information about the scene. Whereas oftentimes people presume you know about the scene or you know, maybe you don't really care, but what they the real purpose of saying what they're saying is to circulate some values or to position themselves in some kind of way. And, you know, I think that that actually by itself is one of the, the main reasons why the discussion about kind of, you know, post-truth problem in, in, in media and so on doesn't seem to go anywhere because uh, it's constantly getting confused between whether we're talking about words being given as measures of the reality that's being spoken about or words being given as measures of the people who are doing the talking. And these two things don't have to really align at all. And, you know, I think that I mean, it's a nice point to finish there because it comes back to really the contrast between the scientist and the lawyer uh, and that is that, you know, on the one hand, we're trying to describe situations because we're trying to get to the bottom of them. We're trying to be accurate. We're trying to describe what's going on. Um, you know, the, the, the scientist would also be the investig investigative journalist, the person who's trying to get at the truth wherever that may lead. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'm not a scientist or, or, or a judge or an investigative journalist. Maybe I'm a lawyer and all I really want to do is convince my audience or, or, or please my audience. And, um, you know, whether you like it or not, that's what a lot of people do with language and that's often what's going on. So I think getting more aware of that and thinking about that more consciously certainly helps. Great. Well, I appreciate your time in, in the last minute that we have. Uh, tell us what you're, what you're working on now that the book is out. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm working on a fair few different things. I suppose the one thing I could talk about at the moment is uh, a plan that I'm working on for a book that really is about uh, a broader question, not of language as a coordination system. That's really what I've kind of spent part of this book trying to get to the bottom of what i'm working on now is a way to broaden that out to really understand the concept of social technology generally so in this work uh and in other work that, that others have been writing there's this emerging concept that language is a kind of technology and you know it's it's something that's invented in a certain sense uh, or at least it's a product of human behavior and it emerges out of human knowledge. And I've been working on trying to think about how language is part of a much broader set of social technologies that really are important for us to understand. Uh, and I guess it's turning more towards 
thinking about the consequences of of all of this for for where we're going in the world. I mean, it's clear that it's a pretty topsy-turvy world and there's a lot of things that we need to try to solve and get right and it's kind of alarming and ridiculous how badly coordinated we are as a species and, and, you know, we really got to get our house in order and it's clear that technical solutions are not going to get us there. We need non-technical solutions and for that I think... A, a, a general understanding of what social technologies are and how we might turn to them uh, for thinking about, you know, what, what's happening in, in the world and how we should try to deal with it. You know, I think that would be that would be desirable and interesting. So I'm working on that and trying to think, well, how could uh, a careful understanding of language's role within that help? Great. Well, we'll look forward to to seeing that when it's when it's finished and out. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Nick, for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks very much for having me.